Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the central motifs of St. Augustine's Confessions is that of seeking wisdom, seeking to understand oneself, the world, God, other people, to make sense of things. And this is not something that you can just simply open up a book and find the answers to. In fact, you have to figure out what you're looking for in terms of answers. And then you also have to think about the the means that you're using to derive or to find answers and, and the testimony in some cases of those who are providing it to you. So this is a very complicated matter. And it's one that I think many of us can relate to in Augustine's way where, you know, we may think, oh, we'll take a class on it or we'll read this book. And then we find that, oh, that doesn't solve everything for us. And we find that by putting things to the test, by progressing in time, by seeing what yields what. And I would say that if we want to pick a place in the Confessions where this first arises early on, it's in chapter four of book Three, where we find out that he becomes interested in Cicero and specifically in a text that had a massive, massive influence throughout antiquity and the early Middle Ages, but unfortunately has been lost to us, the Hortensius, which is an exhortation to study philosophy and, you know, some advice about maybe how one ought to go about that. Now, we don't have much of that text other than fragments, some of which actually come from Augustine, others of which come from other writers later on. And we can piece together a a, a sort of vague picture about what's going on, but we should look at what Augustine himself tells us about it. So he says, in the ordinary course of study, I'm engaged in studies. I came across a book by Cicero. The book contains his exhortation to philosophy and is called Hortensius. So, you know, he runs into an influential text that other people are saying, hey man, you should read this. This is really good stuff. And it has an extraordinary effect on Augustine. So, There are some terms in the Latin that can be translated different ways, but what's important here is that a change is brought about in Augustine, a change in, we can say, not in knowledge itself or wisdom. It's not an end product thing. It's more of a motivational change. He tells us that the book changed my affections, affectum in Latin, the the feelings that he had, right? Uh, And can books do that? Well, certainly they can, including this book, The Confessions. What else? It turned my prayers to you, Lord. Now, we're going to come back to that because that's a a weird thing to say. A book of philosophy turned prayers to God? That that can happen. And caused me to have different purposes and desires. So desire is desideria, right? That, That can be translated as desires, motivations, the things that you value. The other one, purposes, vota. Vota is literally speaking a vow, but you could think of it as a commitment, a set of priorities, a ranking of values and preferences. And that's what this book does. And that's the power of great literature in general. It can change not only our 
you know, mind about things. Oh, this is true. This is, this is false. It can change the way that we orient ourselves. And that is what Cicero's Hortensius is doing. So Augustine tells him that it awakens this great desire, a love for wisdom. He says, all my vain hopes forthwith became worthless to me. And so that stuff we're going to leave aside. Well, kind of. <laughs> and with incredible ardor of heart, I desired undying wisdom. And he says, this is a book I use differently. I didn't use this book to sharpen my tongue. You know, I'm a rhetoric student. But instead, I was using it, or rather, it was changing me so that I could return to God. And he says, how I burned, oh my God, how I burned with desire to fly away from earthly things and upward to you, yet I did not know what you would do with me. For with you, there is wisdom. God is either the possessor of wisdom or wisdom. And so if we're philosophers, that is those who desire wisdom, those who love wisdom, we are seeking that. We are seeking you know, whatever is the best, the highest and then he goes on and he says, there are some people who lead others astray by means of philosophy, right? And they falsify their errors with that great and beauteous and honest name. So you notice Augustine actually thinks philosophy is a really great thing when it's the right philosophy. And he brings up something from where we're going to go next, Holy Scriptures, namely from St. Paul, a passage that has caused so much trouble and mix-ups for so many people over the years because they don't pay attention to what is actually being said there. Beware lest any man deceive you through philosophy and vain deceit according to the tradition of man, according to the elements of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead corporeally. And Augustine says, I didn't know these apostolic words, but I was delighted with the exhortation, Cicero's exhortation, only because of its argument, I was stirred up and enkindled and set aflame to love, pursue, attain, and catch hold of, and strongly embrace wisdom itself. Not the wisdom of this or that school, but wisdom itself. Whatever it is that the truest schools are in fact pursuing. And I would say that this section gives you an idea about Augustine's own project as a, a Christian philosopher, right? So this is a good start, you can say. And then immediately he talks about the Holy Scriptures. And he tells us something really fascinating. He says, now, you know, Augustine is from a nominally Christian family. The dad is not really a Christian in any sense. His mom is, right? And so he knows about the Holy Scriptures. What are the Holy Scriptures? So we're talking about the Jewish texts, right? And then the specifically Christian texts as well. And, and these are viewed as being part of one big fabric, right? There's, you know, all sorts of variety in it. There's, you know, the first five books, the Pentateuch, right? There's the histories, there's the wisdom literature, there's the prophets. In, in the Christian literature, we have the gospels talking about, you know, the life and deeds of this guy, Jesus Christ. We have letters, which is talked about a letter from Paul. We have a few other things as well, like Book of Acts and Revelations. So Augustine says, I decided to turn my mind to the Holy Scriptures and see what they were like. Now, see what they're like. Why? Because he hasn't actually paid any attention to them up until this time. And he says, I see something within them that was neither revealed to the proud nor made plain to children, that was lowly on one's entrance, but lofty on further advance, and that was veiled over in mysteries. Now, this is Augustine retrospectively talking about this, not the Augustine of his exiting youth and moving into adulthood, who doesn't really get much out of them at all. 
Why not? He says, none such as I was at that time could enter into it, nor could I bend my neck for its passageways. When I first turned towards it, I did not feel towards it as I am speaking now, but it seemed unworthy of comparison with the nobility of Cicero's writings. Cicero is the real deal. Scriptures, eh, who knows what that is? It's kind of for ordinary people. It's not orienting me towards something much greater. And so he says, my pride turned away from its humble style. My sharp gaze did not penetrate into its inner meaning. So that's something he explores and then sets aside for the time being. Then we see him talking about looking in another place for wisdom. And this is Augustine's involvement with uh, what at that time was actually a world religion, Manichaeism, which we don't want to spend too much time on it, but we'll say this. Mani was a religious innovator who blended together elements of Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Buddhism, his own teachings, some Gnostic stuff, and came up with an entire complex system that then spread all over the ancient world and indeed became a church in its own right. And Augustine, you know, saw this and thought, well, maybe they have some wisdom there. And so he becomes involved with the Manichaean community and their teachings. And he's, you know, he, he says, listen, these people, I wanted truth. They're talking about truth. Although he says their names, meaning Jesus Christ and the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, were never absent from their mouths, but they were only the tongue sound and clatter while their hearts we're empty of truth. How can you get truth from somebody who doesn't actually have truth? This is a key question. They were always saying truth, truth. Many times they said it to me, but it was never inside them. They spoke falsehoods, not only of you, namely God, who are truly truth, but even of the elements of this world, your creation. They, they, you know, bought into this Gnostic idea that creation is fundamentally bad. It's like a prison. We're trapped in it. We want to be freed of it so we can rejoin God who is entirely outside of this world. And there were ascetic practices and all sorts of other things designed to help you do that. So that's what the Manichaeans are providing him with. And Augustine talks about what it is that they provide by way of teaching or doctrine. And he calls these splendid fantasies in Latin, Phantasmata. Uh, now, this is a technical term in philosophy, meaning the things that are imagined or appear to us, but they're not really what they are. And so he says, truth, truth, how intimately did the very marrow of my mind sigh for you while these men boomed forth your name at me so many times in so many ways. Such were the platters on which the sun and the moon, your beauteous works, but still only your works and not you yourself, were brought to me while I hungered for you. I'm hungering and thirsting for these things. And then he says, but they... Still, they put before me on those platters splendid fantasies. Now, this is a metaphor about eating and about being fed. And it, there's a great play on words in English. They fed me these things. That is, they put them in front of me. They're giving to them to me as nourishment. But these things did not feed me. What they're giving me doesn't satisfy this demand, this desire that I have within myself for real truth. And he goes on and says, these are like food and dreams. Food and dreams is like the food of waking people, but sleepers are not fed by it. They merely sleep. Those fantasies were in no wise similar to you, God. Why? Because they were corporeal fantasies, false bodies and real bodies, whether in the heavens or on earth. So they're 
giving him a cosmology and a metaphysics that turns out to be false, and their picture of God is also likewise false. And then Augustine is going to say something really interesting that requires a little bit of unpacking if you don't know what he's referencing. So he tells us, the readers, that also him talking to God, that it would have been better for him to have focused on the story of Medea, right? A verse and a song and Medea flying aloft. What is Medea flying aloft? Okay, so Medea was one of the great imaginary figures of antiquity. She's supposed to be from Colchis. She betrays her own people, kills her own family uh, out of her love for Jason the Argonaut, uh, supposedly a hero. Jason is actually not very heroic. And they leave with the Golden Fleece. Jason has his kingdom. They actually have some kids together. And then Jason decides that he's going to put Medea and her children aside and marry a local princess kind of start over again in midlife. And Medea is so angry. She's actually used as an example of thumos, anger, uh, uh, rage. And she kills the princess, uh, kills the children, flies off in a chariot. She'll actually marry somebody later on down the line in the story. But this is viewed as like a cautionary tale. And it's also, you know, mythological. Augustine says it would have been better to focus on these made-up stories like that than on other made-up stories that are pretending to be true about the five elements, right? If you're curious about what the five elements are, you know, perhaps this is what Aristotle's talking about with the quintessence being ether and the five elements corresponding to the five dens of darkness, which are completely non-existent. And he says, at least Medea isn't pretending to be a real story. This is pretending to be how things actually are, and it's false. So it'd be better for me to have uh, rejected that. And he, Augustine is going to stay with the Manichaeans, and we'll talk about this elsewhere, for, for quite a while. And suffice it to say that he actually bought into the Manichaeans for a while, and he had to see what they had to offer. In Book 4, we see another attempt by Augustine to acquire and live according to wisdom. He engages with these, uh, what he calls, imposters, who they call astrologers. Why? Because they offered no sacrifices and directed no prayers to spirits for the purpose of divination. So, you know, Augustine doesn't like that idea. Let's, we shouldn't try to contact the spirits. But astrologers, they seem to have a system. They say, well, the stars up in the heavens, those influence our fates, and they determine who and what we are. So he goes on and he, and he says, they say things like the cause of your sinning was fixed unchangeably by the heavens and the planet Venus or Saturn or Mars has done this, meaning that the human being made up of flesh and blood and proud corruption is free from fault and that the creator and ruler of the sky and the stars must bear the blame. And he says, well, who's that but but you, God, right? So the astrologers are not just like giving you little bits of advice, like you will, you will have a good meeting today or something like that. They're telling you about really important stuff and they're shifting the blame from the human being who screws up to the stars and thereby to, and planets, and thereby to God. 
Now, Augustine runs into a guy who actually studied that stuff for a while when he was younger and then decided to leave it aside and focus on medical studies. He's a certain man, wise, most highly skilled in the art of medicine, renowned for it, who as proconsul placed by his own hand upon my foolish head, the crown won in a contest. So this is a guy who's got a lot of, got a juice, right? As we say, a lot of pull. And he's talking with Augustine and he's saying, why are you into that stuff? It's not really effective. By the way, when I was younger, I was into it and I found that it was, it was BS. And so Augustine is getting some useful counsel by him that he should put this stuff aside. And he says, listen, you've got the profession of rhetoric. Don't pursue this other stuff. Focus on your studies that you can actually do something with it. And then Augustine asks him some questions. When I inquired of him why it was that so many of the things that the astrologers foretold turn out to be true, he answered as far as he could, what? It's chance, man. This is just things turning out the way that they said. And Augustine doesn't bring this up, but we have a identifiable bias where we say, oh, look, uh, in 10% of the cases, what they said actually turned out to be true. And then we ignore the other 90% of the cases where what they said, what they predicted, turns out to be false. Right? We have this bias towards looking for the success stories. And this is basically what the guy is saying to him. If a man consults at random some poet who sings and thinks of things far different, a verse often appears that is wonderfully appropriate to the business at hand. This is us reading meaning into things that's not really there. And so that's something that Augustine himself is going to leave behind. We get to the end of this and we see that Augustine has not yet figured out where he's going to get wisdom from, but the desire for it has certainly been aroused, awakened, and affected. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.